It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello, you're listening to the new episode of Talking France, a podcast brought to you by the team at The Local. In this week's episode, we'll discuss the aftermath of France's parliamentary elections, which threw up a big shock, as well as put a spanner in the works of President Emmanuel Macron's second term in office. We'll explain what these results mean and what lies ahead for France in the coming weeks and months. The summer holidays are almost upon us and with airports hit by flight cancellations and strikes, many in France are opting to head off by train. We'll discuss the possibilities for rail travel in France this summer, what the French government is doing to encourage people to swap planes for trains and how you'll be able to travel from France to further afield in the future without flying. We'll also find out about what makes the summer sales in France so different and ask whether the idea that the French only work 35 hours a week is more myth than reality. Joining us to get to the bottom of all these subjects will be the local France's editor Emma Pearson, journalist Jen Mansfield and French politics expert John Litchfield. I'm your host, Ben McPartland. Hi Emma, hi Jen, good to have you with us again on Talking France. How's things been this week? It's been very busy. Yeah, a lot going on in France. There is, as we'll hear about in this episode. Now let's start with the weekly talking points. Emma, what are we talking about in France this week? Talking about the parliamentary elections, which happened on Sunday. And to be honest, going into them, a lot of people were kind of ignoring them, thinking they were a bit dull. Anyway, they've only gone and provoked a full-on political crisis in France because Emmanuel Macron has lost his parliamentary majority. Indeed, the results of the second round of Les Elections Législatives left the president without a majority. Now, Macron went on live primetime TV on Wednesday to give another of his addresses to the nation, which we know he likes to do in times of crisis. He didn't announce anything too big, such as dissolving parliament or replacing his prime minister. He did say opposition groups had shown that they were willing to work with him in order to, in Macron's words, advance on major topics, such as the cost of living crisis and the health system. But he asked them to clarify how far they're willing to go to support new measures. He ruled out any attempt to create a government of national unity made up of politicians from across the spectrum. But he did say that we will have to learn a new way to govern and to legislate. The president also vowed not to raise taxes, but his speech appeared to be more directed at opposition groups than the public, with the president calling for dialogue and a willingness to listen to each other to avoid stagnation. But Emma, without any major announcement from Macron on Wednesday evening, let's get back to the big issue here. What does it actually mean that he's lost his majority? Well, what it doesn't mean is it doesn't directly affect Macron's role as president. He is the president. He was re-elected just a couple of months ago and he remains the president until 2027. But it does affect pretty much anything he might want to do during those next five years of his term. So the result that was delivered was really the worst of all worlds, that Macron's centrist group, Ensemble, together is the largest group in Parliament, but it doesn't have an outright majority and it's 44 seats short, so quite some way short. But on the other hand, the leftist alliance, La Nupe, 
Um, they're the second largest group in Parliament, but they only have 133 seats, so they're a long way off a majority. And basically, nobody really has a mandate from the voters, and any legislation that Macron attempts to pass will likely be blocked. And just before we go on to find out what Macron's doing about it, the big shock for me was the performance of Marine Le Pen's Rassemblement National. Absolutely. This was very unexpected. The pollsters did not expect it. Even Le Pen herself seemed pretty surprised by how well she'd done. She's now got 89 seats in the Parliament, wow. up from eight previously, so big gains there. More than a tenfold increase. OK, we're going to find out more about why Marine Le Pen's party was able to increase her seats so dramatically. Uh, but getting back to Macron, what's he doing about losing his majority? Well, he needs to get enough MPs on his side to form an alliance in Parliament. Otherwise, he's basically going to spend five years as a lame duck president not being able to pass any kind of meaningful legislation. So he has two choices now. He can try to form a permanent alliance with another party. The other option is that he can govern in a minority government and kind of try and create alliances on a vote-by-vote -vote basis, which is obviously a bit fragile. So when you say vote by vote, this depends on what kind of legislation he's passing. Can he pull a few from the Parti Socialist or from the Republican, depending on the issue? Exactly, yeah. It, it's a bit of a mess. And given that Macron's TV address on Wednesday night didn't really clear anything up or suggest a deal was in the making, it seems like these negotiations will continue for some time. It's all got very messy for the French president, just weeks after being re-elected for a second term. We're going to hear more from our political columnist, John Litchfield, on what this will mean for France over the next five years. It's going to be interesting times indeed. Now for our second talking point, we're going to stick with the parliamentary elections. Of course, it is the big subject of the week. But let's look at who we're talking about in the news this week. Jen, over to you. The first person that we're going to be talking about this week is, of course, our current Prime Minister, Elizabeth Bourne. She's been in the news quite a lot. She actually had some success in the parliamentary elections in that she won her constituency in Calvados, Normandy. But you might not be able to say the parliamentary elections overall were a success for her. As we know, she's the second woman in French history to hold the job of PM. And there's a chance that she could end up being the shortest serving PM in French history. Wow. Who's currently the shortest serving PM in French history? So the record currently goes to Bernard Cazeneuve. Um, and he held office for five months and four days in 2016 to 2017. And Bourne, actually, she already handed in a resignation letter to President Emmanuel Macron, but he rejected it. He basically just told everyone to keep doing their jobs. Even if Bourne manages to hold on to her post, we're definitely going to see a cabinet reshuffle soon, at least to replace the three ministers who failed to get elected and therefore will need to be replaced. Those three ministers are Amélie de Montchalin, who is part of the Environment Ministry, Brigitte Bourguignon from Health, and Justine Benin, the junior minister for maritime affairs. Emma, this is hardly a rigging endorsement of Elizabeth Bourne, is it, these results? Not really. I mean, convention dictates for parliamentary elections that the president doesn't get involved. He's supposed to be above all this. So normally the election campaign would be run by the prime minister. But Bourne herself really doesn't have much experience of campaigning. As Jen just said, she was elected in Calvados and that was the first time she's actually stood for office. She's been a minister before, but this is the first time she's been elected as an MP. So it was maybe a bit of an ask to expect her to sort of run the whole campaign. But the problem was nobody else seemed to really step up from Macron's party to lead it either. So what we saw was a pretty limp, uninspiring campaign from Macron's group. OK, perhaps not all the fault of the current PM. Now, beyond the big names of Elizabeth Bourne, Marine Le Pen, Jean-Luc Mélenchon and even Macron, of course, there were some smaller names thrust into the limelight in these parliamentary elections. Let's start with 
a lady named Rachel Keke. Jen, tell us more about this lady. Yes, so she's known for having organized and led the Ibis Batignol Hotel maid strike. And it's pretty historic, actually. It lasted 22 months, and it's considered the longest strike to have taken place in France's hotel industry. And now she's a deputy. So KK herself is a former maid at the Ibis Hotel in Paris's 17th arrondissement. Uh, and she ran in the 7th district in Val-de-Marne, and she ran with the Left Alliance noops. She actually ended up beating the former minister of sports, which was an ensemble candidate. And so at 48 years old, she's originally from the Ivory Coast. Her election has really made history because, you know, she's the first femme de chambre or maid to be elected to the National Assembly. And a lot of people are calling it a win for the voiceless. Fantastic. Yeah, she's been in the news this week. Now, tell us who the youngest French MP is. I always like to know this. So we've got a new record. The youngest MP is Temetai Legaïk. He's only 21 years old and he's a Polynesian pro-independence candidate, actually. He ran with the support of Noops in the legislative elections, though, and he defeated the, min- the former minister of tourism, uh, Nicole Bouteau. The previous record for the youngest député was actually set in 2012 by Marion Maréchal, who was only 22 years old at the time. But the fun fact is that Le Gaïc is actually not the only 21-year-old in France's National Assembly. Louis Boyard is also 21, but he's just a couple months older than Le Gaïc, and he was elected in the Val-de-Marne district with uh, the Noops Coalition. So unfortunately, Boyard hasn't gotten the same media attention, though. Fantastic. Two 21-year-olds in the National Assembly. It's hard to believe. Now, the far-right Rassemblement National Party under Marine Le Pen, of course, achieved 89 seats, as we mentioned already. She she was re-elected in northern France. But Jen, just give us an example of one of these other 88 MPs who are part of the Rassemblement National group in Parliament. Yes. So a good example is Antoine Villedieu. So he was just elected in the Haute-Saône district in Burgundy with the Rassemblement National. And you probably don't recognize his name. And that's like a lot of the other 89 Rassemblement National députés, because a lot of them have never held political office before. Villedieu is just 32 years old. And that's pretty reflective of the fact that the RN is on average younger than the rest of the Assemblée. And this is, like I said, his first time in politics. He's actually a former professional boxer. Now he's a police officer in Besançon. And he's also the national spokesperson for the Independent Professional Police Federation, which is a union that's actually known for its closeness with the far right. Very interesting indeed. And we'll see how these Rassemblement National MPs get to grips with life uh, as an elected lawmaker. And finally, we always like to finish our talking point by looking at a certain part of France. We're still sticking with these election results because it's so interesting. Emma, which parts of France are we talking about this week in relation to these results and why? Well, I've been looking down at the Mediterranean coast, which is now pretty much entirely dominated by MPs from Marine Le Pen's Rassemblement National. Because this is the big story of the election, the unexpected success of the far right, what happened down in southern France? Well, as we kind of said earlier, they've got a a lot of seats and they're support is quite spread across the whole of France, with the notable exception of Brittany, which did not elect a single uh, Rassemblement National MP. But it is slightly concentrated in the northeast, which is very much Le Pen's heartland. It's where she has her own constituency. But also along the Mediterranean coast, there's this real sort of stripe on the electoral maps of dark blue, and her party's made big gains down there. But because I really know how to enjoy myself, I spent an afternoon poking around in voting statistics, and I noticed something really interesting. 
the actual percentage of voters who voted for Le Pen in the first round has barely changed since 2017, since the last elections. They got 13% of the first round in 2017 and they got 18% this time. So a bit higher, but certainly not an enormous gain as their seats showed. And it's kind of the same thing on the left as well. Back in 2017, 25.38% of people voted for the four parties that now make up this leftist alliance of Le Nup. And this time, 25.78% of people voted voted for Noop, so identical, basically. So there's sort of a narrative that French voters are moving to the extremes, but I don't think that's really the case, actually. What has changed is how the percentage vote is translating into how many seats these parties win. Indeed, that's the big change, how the votes resulted in the number of seats that these parties got. So what's changed? Why has this? Well, for the Noop, it's a pretty simple explanation. The four parties formed a pre-election pact, so they weren't standing against each other and counting out votes. So that's how, in 2017, 25% of the vote equals 60 seats, and now 25% of the vote equals 133 seats. But with Rassemblement National, with the far right, the explanation is a little bit more complicated and potentially more worrying, I think. And it has to do with the Front Républicain, the Republican Front, which we've spoken about on this podcast before. And it relates to the sort of peculiar feature of French elections, which is that voters go to the polls twice. So the tradition of the Front Républicain dictates that if a far-right candidate makes it through to round two, the defeated candidates from round one all call on their voters to vote for whoever's standing against the far-right candidate, even if that person is their bitterest political enemy. You vote for them to block the far-right. And this time, that call was just not made in a lot of cases. Macron's party's come in for a lot of criticism because many MPs didn't endorse candidates standing against the far right. But in fact, the same is true of the left. The same happened on the left. And if you look at the vote transfers, there were more people who voted for the left in the first round and then voted for... Marine Le Pen in the second round. And I've got to say that still melts my head, how you can describe yourself as a person of the left and then vote for the far right. But some people did that and a lot of people just didn't turn out in the second round. And since Sunday, there's been a lot of rancour, has there not, between these two parties blaming each other for the performance Absolutely. of the Rassemblement National. Absolutely. I mean, like I say, a lot of it's been concentrated on Macron. But honestly, as my mum used to say, or my brother and I were fighting, they're as bad as each other. They have both done this and they've both very much failed to keep the, the traditional pact of the Front Républicain. And... This does have implications for the future. If we look back just to April, in large part, Macron won re-election because in the second round, a lot of people who didn't like him, hated him in some cases, voted for him because the alternative was President Le Pen. So we just don't know. Will that pact hold up again in the next presidential elections in 2027? Or will France see its first far-right leader since the days of the Vichy government in the Second World War? Indeed, and I think it's now a perfect time to bring in our political columnist John Litchfield to get his views on the election results and what this means for France going forward. John, it feels like, you know, France is in political turmoil at the moment, but we've been here before, haven't we? Uh, Not for a long time. The 1940s and and first part of the 1950s, this was kind of what happened in French government. There were frequently parliaments which had no clear majority and revolving door governments, prime ministers that lasted only a few weeks. That's not really happened since the system was changed by de Gaulle between 58 and 65. Uh, because this is the first time that following the recent election of a president, uh, the, the country has voted not to give him the capacity to, to govern, essentially. There was one other occasion in '88 when Mitterrand was just short of a majority and it was able to sort of limp along with help from other uh, members of parliament, communists, centrists on different issues. 
that may be what Macron will be able to do again, but he's much more, he's more like 40 votes short of the majority, whereas Mitterrand was only 14 short. Big difference, I think. So we are in a an unknown situation for this generation of politicians. I think that's the other crucial point, that they're not used to this kind of haggling, this kind of trying to form a uh, majorities on different issues or alliances between parties that are not formally committed to, to working together. It's all new to them. This is not something that's been ha- happening for well half a century or more. Indeed. I guess it's that unknown element that kind of our listeners and kind of everybody in France is interested in, you know, looking forward to the next five years and how Macron's second term is going to go. I mean, how do you see it panning out over the, the next five years? What does this mean for the country? Well, that's what's extraordinary about this, that it's the beginning of a new president presidential term. All second presidential terms since the Fifth Republic began have ended in kind of disappointment, calamity or disaster in one way or another. But they've ended in that way. This one has begun in that way. And it's a very young president, not one who's sort of close to retirement in the way that Mitterrand, de Gaulle and Chirac were the previous two term presidents. So uh, it it is, as we were just saying, it's a completely unknown situation. I can't really say what's going to happen. I, I think that Essentially, no one has any interest really in, in making it sort of clearly not work for a while. I think everyone will try and pretend it can work for a while because the last thing they want is to cause a crisis and be blamed for it. So I think everyone has somewhat of an interest in making things work, certainly until September, so that everyone can have their holidays. I think the real hostilities may begin then. I think it's quite likely that Macron and Elizabeth Bourne, his prime minister, will be able to get some business through. It's difficult to imagine the parliament blocking the new package on anti-inflation measures, which would put everyone's petrol and electricity prices up. That's not something that's going to please the people. So Mm. I expect that will get through. So I suspect that the the whole situation will limp along unresolved until sometime in the first half of next year when there will be a new election. And Macron will say, this is not working. You have to give me a majority, otherwise the country will suffer and he'll try and get uh, some kind of majority. So we could face more parliamentary elections next year. Now, you mentioned Macron, John. How much blame can we place on his shoulders for the fact that his party hasn't got a majority? Quite a bit, I think. He's run a very strange campaign, a non-campaign. He appointed a prime minister who had no experience running a political campaign, even for herself, never mind for an alliance of five, six, seven different parties in a national election. It never really took off. Now, the campaign by by Ensemble, the Macron alliance, some people say that was deliberate, that it was an attempt to kind of anesthetise the situation in the hope that whatever momentum he had from his presidential victory would not be lost. I think the opposite happened. And there are people who are saying that Macron himself has been behaving unusually since his election, that he's been unusually dithering. He, he's not been able to make decisions. He's not been quite the same man. I have no evidence of that. I, I hinted at it on one of these podcasts a little while ago, and I'm interested to see that other people have been hinting at it who know him much more certainly than I do uh, since. So I think that there is a, a Macron problem out there, which is responsible for what happened in a way. But I think also, you know, there is more to it than that. I think the fact that so few people voted on Sunday, even fewer than than the the week before, suggests that French people themselves have kind of withdrawn from politics in a dangerous way. And although you can understand that, and Macron may be partly responsible for that as well, I think up to a point, the electorate has kind of shot itself in the foot because it says, 
to politicians who don't do anything for us, and yet it's now created a situation where it would be impossible for them to do anything for the country, potentially. It's going to be certainly an interesting time over the next few months, John, to see how this all pans out. Thank you again for joining us on the line from Normandy. The local France has over 10,000 members. Their contributions help us grow our coverage of France and allow us to produce this podcast. If you'd like to join at a discount price, visit www.thelocal.fr slash podcast offer. Now summer is upon us when most people in France head off on holiday. Whilst many take to the roads to drive, one of the best options to get around the country is, of course, by train. The high-speed TGV network allows you to travel at speed through the glorious French countryside and cross swathes of France in just a few hours. With pressure growing to give up flying because of the climate crisis and travel headaches increasing at airports across Europe, many are looking to trains as the best alternative. But is the French rail system up to the task? What's the government doing to make it easier for passengers to exchange planes for trains And what's in store in the future? Will night trains make a return? Emma, everyone seems to be talking about trains this summer. Is it going to get easier to travel by train inside and outside France? Yeah, I think it is. I think there's going to be quite a few changes. Travel behaviour was kind of changing anyway. Even before the pandemic, people were like taking the train a lot more for their holidays, for environmental reasons, flag scam, flight shame. I've just totally mangled the Swedish pronunciation of that. My colleagues in Sweden will be appalled. But I think the this trend towards taking the train has definitely been accelerating this summer. We've seen a lot more people who are talking about, you know, taking a holiday using the train rather than a a plane. I'm one of them. I'm hopefully going down from Paris to Barcelona by train. It's like six and a half hours. I mean, I'd like it to be quicker. But, you know, France isn't bad for quick trains, is it? France is very good for for quick trains. Uh, It has the network, the the TGV TGV network that you talked about earlier, which is 2,734 kilometres of high-speed track. And it really does link up the French cities pretty well. Paris-Marseille, for example, that's a journey of 775 kilometres and you can do it in three and a half hours. You can be from one end of France to the other before lunch, basically. Toulouse-Bordeaux, 224 kilometres, two hours. Paris-Rennes, 345 kilometres, an hour and a half. This is all good. They're heavily concentrated on cities. So once you step off the the high-speed TGV network onto the local trains, there we kind of get more into less good, slow local trains in frequent services. But you can connect to the cities pretty well. But there are a couple of changes coming up in the world of French trains, and they're the two things that you talked about earlier, night trains and European trains. So let's look at Europe first. Obviously, France is already connected to Europe by train. You can go under the sea to the UK on the Eurostar. You can go up and over the Alps to Switzerland or to Italy, as I did earlier this summer. I took a five and a half hour direct train from Paris to Turin. It was great. It was a beautiful journey through the mountains. Or you can go over the Pyrenees to Spain. So they exist. But this network in connecting France with other European capitals is being extended. The first one is probably going to be the direct Paris-Berlin train. That's going to take seven hours and it's scheduled to start running, well, they say hopefully December 2023, but if not then, then 2024. So that's coming. There's also this Europe-wide plan and it's funded partly by the EU Covid Recovery Fund. You remember that the EU voted through for itself. And it's basically for an ultra-high-speed European rail network that links up the entire continent with four incredibly long train routes. 
And because France has the happy accident of being basically in the middle of Europe, a lot of these routes are going to go through France. So there's going to be a lot of quick connections. So, for example, that Paris-Berlin journey that we talked about would go from seven hours to four hours. So, like, super quick. Doable, yeah. Absolutely. Okay, so what about night trains then? I mean, these are the kind of exciting train journeys to take. I took one to the Alps last year. It was in a kind of cabin. It was fairly comfortable, actually. You know, you leave Paris at nighttime, you arrive at the Alps in the morning... You know, it feels like we want more night trains in France. Are we going to get any? Yes, there's a big expansion network. Um, We've already got two domestic ones, as you mentioned. One goes from Paris to the Alps and the other one goes from Paris down to the Pyrenees. But there are plans to open up another eight night trains by 2030. And again, linking up all of France's biggest cities. But we probably should point out that a lot of these are based on Paris. So if you're in other parts of France, you might need to travel to Paris first to get there. So it's not perfect, but it's still pretty good. Okay, now look, for me, it's far better just taking the train. No, I don't have to go to the airport three hours in advance, queue for, you know, baggage drop, queue for passport control. Queue to get on the plane, queue to get off the plane. Isn't it just better taking the train? It is better. I mean, not only that, but you kind of end up actually in the city you want to be in rather than, you know, you land at Paris Beauvais and that's like two hours drive away from Paris. So you're actually nowhere near where you want to work. The train takes you straight into the middle of the city. Uh, you can take your own wine on board so you're not dependent on the big factor. vile wine from airport things. And obviously the big thing, it's much better for the planet. Okay, now speaking of the planet, it's you know it's an important point. We should uh, stress that. Has the French government, Jen, done anything to encourage people to fly less and use the trains more? I mean, it was kind of my decision this summer to ditch planes and take trains. I didn't really feel any encouragement for the French government, but are they doing anything? Yes. So actually, the French government was the first large economy in the world to ban short-haul flights. Basically, if there's a train or a bus alternative in under two and a half hours, then that flight no longer exists within France proper. So if you're looking to travel, for example, from Paris to Lyon or from Paris to Bordeaux or Paris to Nantes, by plane, then you're out of luck, sadly. Good thing there are accessible trains, so you can get there in under two and a half hours. Okay, so what's the goal of all this? Well, the goal is to reduce France's carbon footprint. Short-haul flights are really big polluters. It costs a lot of carbon dioxide for the plane to take off and for the plane to land, and they actually produce 77 times more CO2 per passenger than the train on the same route. Wow, okay. And it actually might not stop here. So activist groups like Greenpeace are advocating for bans on short-haul flights where the train alternative is under six hours. They've said that doing this could eliminate up to 3.5 million tons of carbon emissions per year. And actually, originally, France was debating whether or not the ban on short-haul flights should be a bit longer uh, for longer train rides, potentially up to four or six hours. But there was a lot of contentious debate around that. So it ended up just being the two and a half hour limit. And it was voted on in 2021. But it came into effect recently. So April 2022 is when this uh, became law. And experts say that it's affected about 12% of French domestic flights. So not that many in the big scheme of things. Okay, so and this is very much domestically in France. So within France, what about if I want to go abroad and it's under two and a half hours? Yeah, so you can still take your flight from Paris to London if you want to, even though the Eurostar is quite accessible. Like I said, France currently has a lot of high-speed trains going outside of its borders, actually 2,800 kilometers of high-speed trains to places like London and 
Amsterdam, Frankfurt, and the flights that are going to these cities, they're not going to be restricted. This rule only exists within France, but as we've been mentioning, it's easy to get there by train. Okay, and what about other countries in Europe, perhaps? Will they follow suit? Is there talk of kind of domestic flight bans in their countries to promote train travel? Yeah, there's some talk of that. Other countries like Austria, Germany, and Sweden have been considering it. So some have actually put some measures in place, like Austria replaced a flight route between Vienna and Salzburg with increased train service in 2020, but it wasn't a ban. It was just getting rid of the flight route. And then Germany actually had their aviation association sign an agreement with Deutsche Bahn, which is the country's main rail company, to offer more high-speed train connections in a goal of making it easier to take the train than to fly, but again, not a ban. And then finally, like what Emma was saying with the uh, the social pressure against flying short distances in Sweden, that's definitely made some impact, although the Swedish government did also impose more taxes on airplane tickets. Very interesting stuff. Thank you, Jen. Thank you, Emma. Now it's that time of the episode where we turn our attention to a question from a reader. A very common question about France. It is about the 35-hour week, something synonymous with France. Emma, explain. Do all workers in France only work 35 hours a week? I really hate to burst people's bubble here, but despite the fact that this is probably the best-known fact of France's labour laws, it's actually pretty rare in France to just work 35 hours a week. I mean, it's very rare at the local. Uh, Yes, unfortunately. We need to talk about that, actually. I I think I need to be working less. (laughs) Um, But actually, in fact, the local is not covered by the 35-hour week, and we're one of many industries that are not. It is a law. It exists. It's a fact. It was introduced in 2000, and it was originally intended to lower unemployment. But the law, which became mandatory for all companies from 2002, actually has a lot of exceptions and flexibilities in it. First of all, certain professions are exempt from it, unfortunately, including journalists. That explains a lot, yeah. Yep. Anyone who is at a manager level or above is also exempt from it. And obviously, it only refers to people who are employees. But even people who are covered by the 35-hour week, which tends to be concentrated in the public sector... They often work more like 40 hours a week, a standard working week, really. But instead, they get something that are called RTT days, which is uh, réduction de temps du travail. And this is essentially time in lieu. So any hours in the week that you've worked over that 35-hour limit, you get RTT days, which are basically like extra holiday days that you can take when you want. This is in addition to your statutory 25 days of annual leave. And for some people, it can work out to an extra 15, 20, even 30 days a year. So it basically explains how a lot of French people manage to spend the entire month of August at the beach, as well as taking regular holidays throughout the year. So it's a pretty good deal for people who are covered by it. But on average, French people work 39 hours a week, which is just slightly lower than the EU average of 40.3 hours a week. So there you have it. Most people in France are working more than 35 hours a week. Thank you to everyone who's taken our survey so far. We look closely at all the answers and read all the comments to help understand what you like about the podcast and where you think we could make changes. If you haven't yet responded, please go to the link in the episode description. It just takes a couple of minutes. Each week on Talking France, we bring you three things you need to know about something synonymous with France. In previous episodes, we've untangled France's public holidays, broken down French autoroute, and this week it's time to look at les soldes, or the sales. 
in other words. Jen, the annual summer sales are back on in France. Tell us more about them because there's an interesting story behind this annual shopping bonanza. So Les Soldes started this week, which means it's definitely time to start planning your shopping spree. Personally, I've been wanting a new backpack since March, but I decided to wait for Les Soldes, which brings me to the first of the three things that you need to know about Les Soldes. The first point is that they only happen twice a year. This really surprised me as a Black Friday loving American where everything is constantly on sale and it's basically just up to the store whether or not they want to have a shelf clearing sale or not. In France, their timing depends on where you live. So, for example, if you live in France's overseas territories, those sales will happen at different times to reflect their tourist seasons. But basically, it is up to the French government to decide when the winter and the summer sale happens. There's only two of them per year. And even though you might see markdowns throughout the year in France, the official sales those are only twice a year. Right, okay, so yeah, once in winter, once in summer, basically. These sales, or les soldes in France, are much more regulated than in other countries. Is that right? Yes, so the second fact to know is that they are very strictly regulated by the French government. Basically, like I said, the French government decides when they happen, they decide how long they last, normally around four weeks, um, and they also decide what qualifies as a solde. So basically, a solde is the store selling an item for less than what they purchased it for. And during the rest of the year, discounting is kind of allowed in certain circumstances. So you might see promotion or vente privée, which are private sales, uh, usually like short-term events aimed at regular customers or people who hold loyalty cards. But in these situations, the stores might be selling items for less than their original price, but they're not allowed to sell them for less than what they bought them for. But during Les Soldes, you still benefit for the same consumer protection regulations. You benefit from the fact that it's less than what the company bought it for. And in terms of those consumer protection regulations, like I mentioned, you're still entitled to a refund if the item has not been expressly indicated as faulty. So that's definitely something to keep your eye out for. Definitely some interesting and important info for listeners. Finally, on the subject of Les Soldes, when did Les Soldes begin? Les Soldes started in the 19th century when Simon Manuri, who founded the first Parisian department store, called Petite Saint-Thomas in 1830. He's the one that came up with the idea. And funnily enough, actually, this department store is the ancestor of the famous department store, Le Bon Marché. And so his goal was to sell off the previous season's unsold stock in order to replace it with new products. And today, the main purpose is for the government to regulate the sales. So basically, the government wants to protect small independent businesses, which might not be able to offer the same level of discounts as the big chains or the multinational companies. And so that's actually the reason why we saw the sales dates being moved in 2020 and 2021 at the request of business owners to try and let the stores recover a little bit from the impact of their long closures during COVID. Fantastic. Thanks, Jen. And just a reminder to listeners, if you have a subject that you'd like us to explore on Talking France, feel free to email us at news at the And finally, to wrap things up this week, it's time to look ahead and find out what's coming up in France. Over to you, Emma. Well, we've got some more uh, political shenanigans coming up. Undoubtedly, this is going to continue. A couple of dates to look out for. June 28th is the first session of the newly elected parliament and the new president of the assembly is going to be picked because the last one lost his election. We've also got July 5th is a date to look out for. This is when the Prime Minister, probably Elizabeth Bourne, will announce the new government programme. But it's also the date that uh, Le Nup are threatening to hold a vote of no confidence against the Prime Minister. And it's kind of important to point out that this vote of no confidence would not be against Macron. It would be against the Prime Minister, who's probably at that point still going to be Elizabeth Bourne. But who knows? Indeed. OK, plenty of political shenanigans to come. It's summer season. It's France. The strikes. 
Any news on them? Any updates? Yes. So there is the big airport strike that's taking place on Friday, July 1st. That's going to impact the Paris region airports, Charles de Gaulle and Orly, but not Beauvais. So definitely plan ahead, get there early, be ready to wait in lines, and keep your eye on the flight tracker because that's always uh, important in case there are any cancellations. Indeed. Contact your airline, I think, is the kind of ultimate advice we'd give to listeners. Now, moving on to something more cultural Let's get away from strikes and politics. What's going on on the cultural scene in France, Jen? Yes, so there's this thing called Fête de Cinéma, and actually that's taking place from July 3rd through July 6th, and it's going to allow you to go see a movie for four euro. So any movie theater across France will be participating, so you can see any film that's currently in theaters for just four euro. so definitely mark your calendars for that. Then another big day that's coming up is July 7th. That's the end of the school year, so school's out for summer. The start of Les Grandes Vacances. Yes, and we'll get into that more next week. And then finally, if you're living in the Paris area or if you're on vacation here, there's the Paris Plage, uh, and that's starting up July 9th, and it'll run through August 21st. So if you want to take a dip in the lovely canal water or you just want to sit in a nice lawn chair, you can come enjoy the Paris Plage. Fantastic. From politics to strikes to Paris Plage and Les Grandes Vacances, there is plenty coming up in France, and you'll find information on everything on the local.fr. Thanks again, Emma, for joining us. Thanks, Jen. And thanks to you all for listening. And we'll be back with more next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.